Amen. All hail King Jesus. Amen. Amen. Yes, let's give the Lord a round of applause if we can do that this morning. Well, welcome this morning to our 1115. Uh, I like to say all the time, again, if you're a guest, definitely want to take this opportunity to say thank you. Uh, for being here and worshiping with us. Uh, Not a coincidence, nothing random. God has brought us here today. As you know, this past Friday was Veterans Day. And so we always wanna honor and celebrate uh, the sacrifice and the work of our military community. And so I'm gonna ask, if you're in the military, uh, retired, active, I'm gonna ask you to stand at this time so we can just recognize you. Thank you for your service and thank you for your sacrifice. Yep, absolutely. Amen. Amen. You know, what a blessing just to, you know, gather on a, on a Sunday morning freely. And we don't take that for granted. We know that's not the case throughout the world. And so thank you. And I said in the last two services, and I believe it, it's a family calling. You know, it's not just the individual, whether it's the husband or the wife or the man, the woman. It's a family calling. And so thank you uh, to all of our military families, those who hold the fort down uh, while the other one is away. Uh, we just thank you so much for your sacrifice and the way you serve the Lord, our country, but also, again, just the freedom we have as a result of that. I want to say thank you. Uh, this past October, every October, is Pastor Staff and Appreciation Month. And so let me just say on behalf of our staff and, and pastors, thank you uh, for the way that you guys love us, honestly. I mean, the way that you, you know, send cards and encouragement. We've had life groups uh, provide baskets. And so it's just been, you know, lunch this past week. And so you guys, uh, the way you love us is just so encouraging. I can tell you that. And as the pastor, I just, you know, I can't tell you how many times at just the right moment, you know, I'll receive a car or an email or something and the Lord will just use it, I know, to minister to my heart. And so thank you for the way that uh, you love us as pastors and staff. And it is a privilege to serve with you here uh, at River Oak. And so let me say uh, just thank you for that. Excited for Thanksgiving next uh, Sunday. Uh, not, it's not officially Thanksgiving, but it's our Thanksgiving service. We want to get you spiritually right on that Sunday before your families arrive, all right? So next Sunday night, we're going to come and just meditate for four hours. I'm just kidding. No, uh, we're going to gather, yes, and we're going to celebrate, you know, what the Lord has done for us. And then uh, we will spend the week with uh, our family. And so excited for the service next Sunday night, six o'clock. Uh, very unique service in the sense that, you know, the two ordinances, the Lord's Supper and baptism, everything will kind of revolve around that next Sunday night. And so I've had the great privilege of uh, meeting with people for baptism. And it's been really cool to hear just what God has been doing uh, in their lives. And so we're excited for that. Take your Bibles with me, if you would, and turn with me to the book of 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 17. Now, to give you a little bit of an update of where we are in our sermon series and all that, for those of you who have been with us, we've been in the series uh, for about three years now, Old Testament Stories of Faith. It's not been that long, uh, but really going back to even in the summer, we've been looking at these different stories found in the Old Testament, right, that, that speak of our faith, right? It all goes back to Hebrews 11, 1, Hebrews 11 being God's hall of faith as the author is explaining that it's always been faith, whether it's Noah or Abraham or Moses, it always has been faith. And then you come back and you go to, to, to verse six of Hebrews 11, where it says, what? It's impossible to please God without faith, that we must believe who he is and we must believe that he will do what he says he will do. And so as we've gone through and we see these stories, we see that playing out. 
And my challenge to you through all of this, again, has been to put yourself in the scene, but without kind of, you know, don't jump ahead. We know the end of the story. Many of us like to go to the last chapter in the book. Well, we know the stories. If you were raised in the church or, uh, you know, grew up in, in any type of vacation, but many of these stories are familiar. And so the danger sometimes is to, to know how God has already performed, already acted, and to kind of miss the trenches of the faith that is required in every one of these situations. I'm excited this morning to speak on the character of Elijah. Uh, Elijah is only one of two people in the Bible. Can anyone answer this? That's unique. There's only one or two people in the Bible that what? Does anyone know? Did not die, right? Was called up into heaven. So there's a lot of mystery behind Elijah a little bit. You come to 1 Kings 16. So go there first. We're going to read a couple of verses before we get into chapter 17 and 18 next week. Uh, you come to verse, and he kind of just appears out of nowhere in some dark times. And we'll explain the context of that in just a moment. And so for the next two weeks, we'll finish this series of Old Testament studies of faith. We'll do one week for Thanksgiving, which is the 27th. That will be uh, the Sunday following Thanksgiving. And then I'm excited about a Christmas series. We'll get into a three-week Sunday morning Christmas series as we talk about the son of David, the son of man, the son of God. We're gonna look at those three titles given to Christ and really unpack that, that leads us into our uh, Christmas Eve service, which is on a Saturday. And so again, we're excited for where the Lord is taking us in that. First Kings chapter 17. Now, let me catch you up a little bit. If you were with us last week, we looked at the character of, free coffee if you can name the character from last Sunday. Wow, did y'all come here last week? Were y'all here last week? We, we welcome all you guys, because y'all are all brand new this week. Last, last week, I spoke on the character of... Yes, praise Jesus. Free coffee for you. Samuel, right? First Samuel, the book, we talked about four characters in the Bible of First Samuel. Right? You have Hannah, you have Samuel, and then really Saul and David. Those are the four main characters of First Samuel. We talked about this last week, a transition, you know, in the Bible, kind of a transition even in the life of God's people as you're moving from the judges now to the kings. You go to that last verse in the book of Judges, it talks about how corrupt things really were, that everybody were doing, they were doing whatever was right in their own eyes. Well, they're asking for a king. And you know the story, right? God raises up Samuel. You have the prayer of Hannah in chapter two. You have Samuel and Eli. God calls Samuel to anoint the first king of Israel. And his name was Saul. Then you come to the second king of Israel. His name was David, right? And so when you come to the book of first Kings, the book of first Kings talks about the period of kings, that after David, uh, and we'll get into kind of what happens here, there's about 20 kings. There are 20 kings in the north, 20 kings in the south, and the author of First Kings really evaluates these kings and how they led Israel in that time period. If you know the story, right? David, you know, passes it on to Solomon. David wanted to build a temple. He was a man of war. God said, no, it's going to be your son that builds the temple. There's Solomon, who God says, you ask anything that you want, and I will give it to you. And what does he ask for? Wisdom. He starts out so well. The book of Proverbs, right? Written by Solomon. But we know that things don't end well for him, right? We know that he continues down this road to walk away from the Lord. That's why you come into Ecclesiastes and you find a phrase where he says, vanity of vanities. We're talking about the richest man had more possessions. But as you go and you fall, uh, follow the passages, you get to 1 Kings chapter 9 and things starts to change. You have the building of the temple, which is this great celebration in the land of God's people. I mean, how could you not? I mean, it's extravagant. But immediately God appears 
and says to Solomon, okay, keep my commandments. Do not you know, pursue idols, stay within the covenant of what I've been given you. And what's the promise? The promise is that God's kingdom will rule the nations. The promise is that out of the line of David will come the Messiah. The promise is right, that all the promises of Genesis 12 given to Abraham will fall to God's people. But we know what happens in First Kings about nine, right? It goes sideways. Solomon gets very uh, political, starts doing exactly what he was told not to do, which was, you know, making these arrangements with outside pagan nations. Even beyond that, he was marrying, he was taking wives from these outside pagan nations. And even deeper than that, not only was he taking these wives, he was taking the pagan worship, the idol worship from these other surrounding areas and incorporating it into the land of God's people. So you know the story, right, Solomon? Then you have Rehoboam. Remember Rehoboam, that's his son. Rehoboam takes over the Southern kingdom. Now there's a split there. Jeroboam takes the 10 tribes and goes to the North. You have Rehoboam to the South. First Kings then describes all the Kings that reigned in that era, both in the Northern kingdom and the Southern kingdom. And as I said before, the author comes to the conclusion of it and he gives three criterias. Number one, did they serve the God of Israel alone? That's the first one, the King leading the people. Number two, did they stand up against idolatry in the land? That was one of the great commands we see of God and we're gonna see that play out here. And then number three, did they uphold the covenant given to David? And at the conclusion of 1 Kings, what do you find? Zero of the 20, zero of the 20 from the Northern Empire, Northern Kingdom would fall into those criteria. Only eight of the 20 in the Southern. So what you have now is the arrival of Elijah somewhere about 850 years before the birth of Jesus. And let me just give you the context in which he arrives. Take your Bibles if you wouldn't stand with me in reverence to reading God's word. The title of the message this morning is dependent. And we'll talk about that as we move through this passage. But chapter 16 gives you the setting. And I pray you see this through all of these stories, right? All of these characters, right? That, that some of the greatest work that God does is in some of the darkest of times. Not just in the life of God's people, plural, but singularly speaking. That many times we see in these stories, it's in a tragedy or it's in a storm or it's in this dark season that requires faith that God does something miraculous. And we see that playing out here, but let's just go back. Look at chapter 16 and let's just go back and read verse 29. This gives you the setting in which Elijah arrives in. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel and Ahab reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Now hear this. Now Ahab did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And that says a lot. If you go back and you read first Kings and you read the stories of these Kings, that more than any of the other ones, this one did more to stir up the anger of God. Look at what it says. And it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, that he took as his wife, who? Jezebel. Remember her name? I can hear Brenda Burst, that little Jezebel, not that she ever called anybody a little Jezebel kind of here, this daughter, the king of the Sidonians. And he went and he served the Baal and worshiped him. This is the king of Israel. Then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had bought or built in Samaria. And Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more, hear this, to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Join with me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word, the realness of it, the realness of it. The good, the bad, the ugly, the faithful, the unfaithful, the, 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 
the stuff that we can draw on, that we celebrate, but at the same time, Lord, the, the things that we see that are warnings to us. But Lord, we thank you that 3,000 years later, we can open your word and that it applies to our lives in the here and now, Lord, we see in the details of these stories, our same things, the same struggles, the same temptations that we see playing out here, Lord, we see it in our own lives. And so Lord, we pray that our dependence fully would be found in you. And that Lord, in this journey, when one source dries up, that rather than running to another place to provide, we would wait on you to open the next door. May you encourage our hearts, Lord. May you challenge us and stir us and convict us to fate this morning that we may please you. We thank you for Jesus and we see him all throughout, Lord, 850 years before his birth. We see it even playing out in these stories and we thank you for that. May you lead us and guide us this morning. May the name of Jesus be lifted high. We pray, we ask in his name and all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. The name Elijah means the Lord, Yahweh is Lord, Yahweh is God. And we, we know that, okay, that speaks of his heritage. It speaks of the name given to him from his mom and dad, but it also speaks of what we're going to read next week in 1 Kings chapter 18, one of my favorite chapters of scripture. I remember as a kid thinking, man, this guy's talking trash. Like he is talking trash to the prophets of Baal. Do you know the story where they're trying to say, okay, whose God's the real God here? And he's like, well, y'all been calling on Baal for, maybe he's uh, on a vacation, he says. In the Hebrew language, he also says, maybe he's relieving himself, which I think that is just funny. We serve a God that has a sense of humor. And so he trash talks him, biblically speaking. We're gonna see that next week. But before you get to that, and before you get to him being called into heaven, there's a lot that happens. There's a lot of things that God does in the heart and life of this man to deepen him and to deepen his trust and his faith in his God. But it's not just the story of Elijah. It's also the story of this widow here that we're going to see that I've been so encouraged by throughout, I know my study of this passage. Over 30 times the name Elijah is spoken in the New Testament more than any other Old Testament prophet. We know that we see him at the Mount of Transfiguration, right? You go to Matthew chapter 17, verses one through three, you have Jesus, you have Moses, you have Elijah. Many believe that when you go to Revelation 11, the two witnesses, that it would be Moses and Elijah. There's a lot of mystery kind of surrounding the character of Elijah, but even the way it just, he arrives on the scene. Uh, chapter 16 tells us the darkness in the land of God's people. And then all of a sudden, without any warning, here comes this man of God. And what is he dealing with within the land of God's people? He's dealing with idolatry. They're worshiping Baal because they believe that Baal provides rain for the crops. And so this goes back to where are they placing their dependence? And so here's this prophet of God raised by God. And anytime you find a prophet in scripture, right? They are speaking, thus saith the Lord. God has given them a word, spiritually speaking, to speak to his people. And many times it's a call to repentance. Many times when the prophet Jeremiah and Isaiah are speaking, they're saying, hey, we are going the wrong direction. We need to recalibrate and research the Lord, reseek the Lord. And so he arrives on the scene exactly in this time. Idolatry, setting up temples of Baal within the promised land. And the God gives him courage to take a stand. Now, I thought about this last week. I was talking to my dad. I said, you know, this whole thing with water, like you see this in scripture all the time, like being so reliant upon the God to meet our needs, right? It's just been within the last, what, 100 and something years that we can just go and turn on. I said spigot at eight o'clock and so many people looked at me so funny. I don't know if that's a North Carolina, is spigot a North Carolina term? 
faucet, is that a good term? That thing, you cut on the water. And what comes out usually when you cut it on? Water. And I thought about this, right? I wonder if even technology over the last hundred years, right, right, are, are we less dependent upon the Lord than even those who maybe go, it's just been within the last hundred years. What's happening here is the situation of water. I remember when I was a kid growing up, my grandparents' house, we'd have like 20 for Thanksgiving and we would go to the same house that my, my uncle and my father were raised in, about 1,100 square feet, one bathroom. That's a problem when there's 22 people gathered for Thanksgiving. That's a problem when there's a lot of food gathered for, I won't go into the details, but I remember being a little kid and I went and knocked on the door and my grandmother was in there. And my grandmother was in there, just meant you got about an hour to wait. And so she said, go out back and, and look up into the window. I went out back behind the house. She threw out a roll of toilet paper to me. <laughs> it traumatized me, traumatized me, 12 years old. I knew there was a creek back there behind the house. And I'm like, uh, I called her Mama. That's another North Carolina term there. Like, I said, Mama, what, do you, what, do you, what exactly, I'm getting high. My voice is getting high. What exactly do you want me to do with this? She's like, what do you mean? Go use the bathroom down by the creek. And I thought to myself, what century are we living in right now, right? And I asked my dad about this. He said, man, I remember as a kid having to go outside to use the bathroom. I'm like, bro, how old are you? Like, this is giving me a whole no, new understanding of, of what you're coming from. But I started thinking about this, the dependency of just water. I remember when I went to Haiti, man, I was always intrigued, man. Before the sun came up, you should have, you could just go sit on the balcony and just watch what's happening before the sun comes up. Men and women working hard. I'm talking hard. You know why? Because water was not just something that they could turn on. Food was not just something that they could order at a drive through window. They were working to meet their daily needs. I look at this story and I think to myself, how dependent, how comfortable have we become in just the things that we have every single day that we're a little bit maybe less likely to solely rely upon the Lord as our source, as our provider, right? A lot of this goes back to what? Matthew 6, you go back to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is speaking of what? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things, right? If the issue is idolatry, just as it happens in the Old Testament, it still happens today. Now it may look a little bit different. I don't know how many of you have a wooden object. Any, anybody got a wooden carved object in your pocket right now that you can pull out that's an idol? If you did, don't pull it out, please don't. We don't necessarily have the physical ones, but let's be real, we have American idols, not Danny Goki. We have American idols, <laughs> possession, power, prestige, comfort, pleasure. These are idols that may not be this physical thing that you walk in and that we're worshiping, but what is the definition of an idol? A definition of an idol is anything we put in the place of the Lord that we seek something from that only the Lord can do. So what does that mean? That the enemy can even in the blessings of God. I've told the story before about my mom wiping her hands clean, that I had become an idol in her life, a blessing, a child. The enemy don't care. Well, we become, okay, I, my dependence is not necessarily on the Lord. My dependence is upon what I bring to the table. Man, what a dangerous place to be. And so you see that this is in the realm of idolatry that is taking place. So look at verse one and let's look at what happens here. In the darkest of times, man, God does some of his greatest work. Elijah shows up and Elijah, the Tishbat of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Now I see something right away. Many times the Lord will attack the idol itself. What I mean by that is this. 
in my own life, if there's something that I put in front of the Lord, you can almost guarantee that it's a matter of time before the Lord wipes it away, that I've become dependent upon, that I'm looking for it to do only what the Lord has promised to do. I used to say this to our young people all the time, be careful what you put in front of the Lord, but that's not just a statement for young people, that's for all of us because the Lord has a way of removing that thing that we think we're dependent upon and him saying, hey, are you truly dependent upon that thing or upon me? And I look at this as something that plays out in our own lives. He steps in, they were looking to dead gods to bring them life. They're looking for rain. And Elijah steps up and says, it's not gonna rain again. Let's see who the real God is, guys. Let's see if it's the God of Baal that provides rain or the God of Israel, Yahweh, that provides rain. Notice what happens here, look at verse two. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, get away from here, as you know, Ahab's wife, Jezebel, now after to seek and to kill him, turn eastward and hide, notice this, by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. Sometimes the Lord leads us to do things that make no sense at all. Can I get an amen? You're gonna see this play out in the life of Elijah, where God is saying, trust me, but it's not gonna make sense to you. Now, if you go and you look at this land, geographically speaking, this is the east side of the Jordan River. It was known for being inhospitable. It was known for being a dangerous place. It was known for no food supply. So here's God saying, I'm gonna send you to a place that makes no sense at all to do something in your life that I can only do through this situation. Now, I'll be real with you. I think so many times, right, the Lord will lead us into the desert and remove sub supplies that we've relied upon to show us that the only supply that we need is Him. And that's an uncomfortable place to be. And you're gonna see this play out where God even closes the door to this original provision and He's waiting on the next one. But notice how it goes, look at verse four. He says, and it will be that you will drink from the brook that I've commanded and that the ravens will feed you. Any Ravens fans in here? I didn't know you were being biblically sound by being Ravens fans. I don't know if you can love Jesus and be a Cowboys fan, but you can love Jesus and be a Ravens fan. Sorry, my bad. So the first way that he meets his needs is, okay, well, that makes sense, a brook. That makes sense. Sometimes God meets our needs through things that make sense. I'm going to quench your thirst with this brook. But let's be real. The second thing he uses Ravens, the catering service of ravens, that, that I'm gonna send ravens to you two times a day to bring you a sandwich, that's meat and bread, right? I'm gonna bring you Jersey Mike's twice a day. Sometimes God meets our needs in ways that will blow your mind. Can I get an amen? amen. Don't put God in a box, man. You know what's crazy about this? If you go through and look at Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14, ravens were dirty birds, not the dirty birds, Atlanta. Ravens were unclean birds. God had told them that these birds are off limits, they are unclean. So don't miss this. God is using something. All things fall under the authority of God. God is using something that he would not have naturally thought would be there to meet his needs. I heard a pastor say this, and I thought this was so good. Sometimes God will bring hell, or sometimes God will bring heaven from hell. What do I mean by that? Sometimes God will use the things of the enemy. He won't lead us to sin, he won't put us in the position to sin. But guess what? You see it in scripture, he uses sin to get a hold of God's, of God's people's hearts. He uses sinful people to, to bring us to a place of, of trusting him. And so here he is in this place. The first need is met, okay, by a brook. That's nice. The second need is supernatural, that these ravens would feed him. It reminds me of a story. 
was a widow, she was 85 years old and she had been just walking with Jesus for a long time and she was not ashamed of it. She would tell everyone that, that her source was the Lord. And so she would in the mornings and at night stand on her uh, little patio and proclaim, God, I'm asking you to meet my needs and I'm expecting you to meet my needs today. And she would proclaim that for people to hear. And, and it was daily needs. I mean, she was struggling to find food. She was struggling to find basic resources. Well, there was two knucklehead boys that lived in the neighborhood. They heard her, they saw her and they said, let's, let's have some fun with her. And so they went and got a nice meal, brought, her to her front, brought it to her front doorstep. She came out, saw the meal. You can imagine what she started doing, praising Jesus, thanking Jesus. They jumped out from the bushes and said, aha, that wasn't God who provided that, that was us. She looked at them, snapped her fingers. She said, if the ravens can provide for Elijah, God can use two buzzards like y'all to meet my needs. <laughs> I don't mind eating on the devil's tab. And so what we see here is again, don't put the Lord, sometimes the Lord is bringing us to a place to make us trust him in a way because there's a new season that's getting ready to come. Don't miss this. The brook dries up. So don't let anyone ever tell you that just because you're serving Jesus, that one of the provisions of the Lord dries up. I've seen people lose their jobs in the midst of walking with the Lord. I've seen people lose their homes in the midst of walking. Doesn't mean they're outside the will of God. It might mean that they're exactly where God wants them to be. The disciples crossed in the Sea of Galilee. Why were they in that storm? Because they were exactly where Jesus sent them. There was something only through that storm that Christ could do in their heart. And so we see in this situation, right, that the brook dries up. What happens when the provisions of the Lord dries up in our lives? We're something that's been sustaining us and sustaining us. And now all of a sudden it's like, whoa, new season. What a critical place to be. Right, because in that place, right, if, if we glorify him by our faith, right, what's the natural human response to do? Well, I gotta, figure out, uh, I gotta figure out an answer to this. I gotta fix this. I gotta control this. I gotta manipulate this. And sometimes the Lord says, uh-uh, I'm not asking you to do any of those things. Be quiet, be still, and trust. And notice this here, that the brook dried up first, then the word of the Lord came. Now I wonder how God, if God just kept meeting their needs and meeting his needs and meeting his needs, quenching his thirst, feeding him, would he have gotten to the point to be sensitive enough to now trust him even more? But now this provision is dried up. And so now God says, I'm gonna blow your mind even more. Look at what happens here. Verse seven, and it happened while the brook dried up because there had been no rain. It speaks to the severity of the drought. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, arise, notice this, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon and dwell there. See, I've commanded a widow there to provide for you. Now, when you first read that, you think you don't really make too many connections, but if you go back and really look at the demographics of this, he is sending him to the place of Baal. It's basically what he's sending him to. We call this the Bible belt. This would be the Baal belt, right? This is where the worship of Baal was prevalent. This is where it all came from. He is sending him to a Gentile city to encounter a Gentile woman, a widow. Now, how much trust does that require? I mean, as you go through and you study the, the, the scriptures, right? The widows were the ones that you gotta meet their needs. They're not the one meeting needs. That as a society and a community, you care for them, you watch after them. But here's God's economy, right? It's different than this world's economy. He's saying, hey, I met your need at the brook. I met your need with the ravens. Now I'm gonna meet your need in another unlikely situation with a widow. You wanna talk about humility too? I believe this was teaching the prophet of God to be ministered to by a widow. And notice how this plays out, man. 
He travels now 60 mile journey to this Gentile city. And then it says this, beginning in verse 10. So he rose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, indeed a window, window. I said that in the last two services. She was not a window. She was a widow. And she was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. Now, again, if you put yourself in these shoes, here's this widow woman, Gentile. She's, we're getting ready to see that she's basically preparing their last meal for her son and her, looking at the drought and the famine, thinking our life is coming to an end. And this dude shows up and says, hey, can I get some water? Okay, I can handle that. Can I get some bread? Wait, wait. Who do you think you are, bro? I'm trying to feed my son here. And you just stumble upon here and you're asking for food and you're asking for water, but notice how it plays out. And she was going to get it and he called her and said, please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So she said, okay, water I can provide, food I can't. As the Lord, your God, don't miss that, not her God yet, your God lives. I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin, a little bit of oil in a jar and see, I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself so that my son and I may eat it and die. Like through all these stories, man, don't miss the darkness of this. Not rain for three years. Here's a Gentile woman not seeking God, but God seeking her. And grace arrives at her doorstep because the first thing he says to her is, Do not fear. Where do we see grace in the Garden of Eden, right? You want to see grace when sin enters into humanity and there's Adam and Eve and they're hiding themselves. And yes, God pronounces grace. He tells them to remove their fear. You see this picture of grace. But faith was required. Look at this. And Elijah said to her, first thing, verse 13, do not fear and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me and afterward make some for yourself and for your son. What is he challenging her to do? It's Matthew 6, playing out in an Old Testament narrative. To trust God first is what he's asking her to do. You wanna see a God who will meet your needs? Give me today my daily bread. He's requiring faith first. And so as we've seen with all these stories, as Elijah is speaking, faith is required before the miracle. Faith is required before the action. Faith is required before the promise can be fulfilled. And so he throws it out to her and don't miss this, right? They're in a tragic situation. They're starving to death. Can she trust the God that this prophet speaks of enough that he will meet her needs? And look at what happens here. For thus says the house of Israel, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day of the Lord that he sends rain. So she went away, here's her faith, and did according to the word of Elijah, the word of the Lord. And he and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry according to the Lord, which he spoke to Elijah. Every day, the Lord is now meeting the needs of this widow and her son. The now, the next miracle, right? That, that not only are ravens feeding, but now this next miracle is, okay, you can keep feeding, but your flower is not gonna diminish. Your, your oil is not gonna diminish. God's gonna keep putting stuff back in the pantry. 
It's Matthew 6, is what it is. Where your heart is there, your treasure may be also. Verse 21, you come to verse 25 and it says what? Do not worry. Do not worry about your life. Do not worry about your food. Do not worry about what you wear. And it all leads to Matthew 6, where Jesus says what? But seek ye first the kingdom of God. And then all these things. This is, and then all these things. But it doesn't end there. God has to do something even more in Elijah and I believe he has to do something even more in this widow. It's one thing to believe in God to meet your needs, a sustainer of life, but a giver of life. What a tragedy it would be for Elijah to point this widow lady to a God to meet her physical needs and her miss the greatest need. What a tragedy it would be, right, for us to say, hey, serve God because he'll meet your needs today and yet miss the greatest need. The greatest need is our spiritual need, his grace, his mercy. The greatest need is not only that he's the sustainer of life, but he's the giver of life. This is the first time you find in the Old Testament, the resurrection. It's the first time you find a resurrection in the Bible. Jehovah Jireh, does anyone know what that means? My God who provides. Do you know the first time we see that? is in Genesis 22. Do you know the story? You have Abraham and you have Isaac. And they're making their way to the top of that mountain. You remember the story? And God is leading this father to do the unimaginable, to take the life of his own son. And yet the depth of his faith was so deep that he believed that even if God led him to do the unimaginable, that God was big enough to bring this child back to life. When he looks at his father and says, where's the ram? What does he say? The Lord, Jehovah Jireh, shall provide. That's the first time you find it. And it's a picture of God providing the lamb of God, Jesus, as a savior. She needed more than just her physical needs met. She needed to see the God that would bring her from death to life. And it happens in her own son. Look at verse 17. Now it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick. And his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, what have I to do with you, man of God? Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? Does this sound familiar? You can see this playing out today when a tragedy enters into our lives, how quick it is to say, well, it's because of my mistakes. My sins have brought this upon my family. It's the reaction of a mom. And he said to her, give me your son. So he took him out of her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, laid him on his own bed. Then he cried out to the Lord and said, oh Lord, my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodged by killing her son? Verse 21, this is why James describes Elijah as a man of fervent prayer. And he stretched himself out on the child three times and he cried out, oh Lord, my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. Then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the child, the soul of the child came back to him and he revived and Elijah took the child. Now picture this, mom's dead, picture this. You've seen God meet your physical needs. That's one thing. Your child dies, that's a whole nother need. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and Elijah took the child, brought him down from the upper room to the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. Then the woman said to Elijah, now by this, I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. Now we know that again, James talks about Elijah having a nature like ours. We know that just a chapter later, this same man who has just experienced the resurrecting power of God would ask for God to kill him. God, just take my life. It's gotten too bleak, just take my life. But 
there were things that God had to do in his heart to prepare him to be the man that he called him to be. Just in the next chapter, we're getting ready to see him stare down over 850 prophets of Baal. God had to deepen his trust in a way that there was no question that the God of this universe will cast fire from the heavens. But it was all part of the journey. As I look at this story, I see a man walking by faith. Okay, this provision is dried up and there's a critical moment right there that we run to find our own sources. Where God says, no, 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 I'm gonna open up a new door for you. Now trust me over here. Do you trust me over here? Okay, now new season for you, new season for you. I'm gonna deepen you. This isn't for resentment or bitterness. This is for you to know me more, to know the God that only meets your needs, but to meet your greatest needs, your spiritual needs. And in this picture, we see the first resurrection of God's word. Take your Bibles, go to Luke 4. I want you to see this and we're gonna close. This girl made the words of Jesus. She made the New Testament. We don't know her name, but go to Luke 4 and listen to the words of our Savior as he's talking about Elijah. And he is speaking of this widow. It's Luke chapter 4, verse 24. There are a lot of widows in that area. And I heard a pastor say many years ago, he said this, God is willing to reveal his will to anyone who's willing to do it. And I remember sitting out there and he said to, you, said, to, said to us, said to me, I felt like I was the only one in the room. Maybe the reason God hasn't opened the door is because he knows you're not interested in it. And as I see this story, I see that there was one widow that God knew had a heart of faith. And Jesus speaks of her, Luke 4, verse 24. He is speaking of himself as a prophet coming to his own people and his own people receiving him not. And he says this, assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I will tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heaven was shut up three years and six months and there was a great famine throughout all the land, but to none of them was Elijah sent except her to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. We don't know her name. We don't know her son's name, but we see her faith. And as a Gentile woman, she got to see in her own home a God that could raise a boy from death and bring him to life. And I don't know about you, that's what we celebrate in Jesus, that because of his resurrection, not only does he meet our daily needs, praise God for that and the promises there, but even deeper than that, God uses the journey. And sometimes it's in a dark season to cut something off, to deepen our faith, to wait for something new. And he uses that journey to write the story that he's writing in our lives that we're reading about now 3,000 years later. We have never heard of her had she relied upon her own feelings and emotions. I read this this past week and it has stuck to me. We spend too much time listening to ourselves and not enough time talking to ourselves. Too much time listening to our flesh and our doubts and our fears, not enough time preaching truth to a heart that needs to hear. That rhymed and I didn't even mean for it to, but it makes sense. I'm gonna invite you to stand with me in reverence as we go to the Lord in prayer. Here's my challenge to you this week. 
Where are you relying upon the Lord that you can say without any question at all? Do you bring nothing else to the table? You're waiting. God, to meet you in this place and you're waiting for God to do what he's promised to do. Isn't that a Hebrews eleven six? As you read these stories, right, there's time in between these verses. We know that. It's not just one thing the next day, the next day. This is their journey of faith. But Adrian Rogers is known for his Adrianisms is what they call these statements that he makes. And I'll never forget him saying, you know, so many times we approach the Lord as our last resource rather than our first resort. To wake up each morning and say, Lord, you're the source. You will use other resources, but you're the source. May you hold the place in my heart and life that nothing else should. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Say it with me. And I wonder how many of you are waiting for the and all these things. But he's waiting on your faith first. Join with me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this story. We thank you for your word. We thank you that these were real men and women in tragic situations, starvation, drought, a famine, death within the home, a tragedy of a, of a, of a child. And yet you showed yourself faithful in the midst of all of this, Lord. And so we pray through this that you would deepen our faith. We understand that we can't know you apart from it for by grace we are saved through faith. It's not random faith, it's specific faith in your son, Jesus, who did what none of us could do, live a life that met every standard then died in our place and rose again. We thank you for the resurrection of our savior that gives us the hope today. But Lord, I wonder, there may be some here today who are trusting you to meet their needs this afternoon and they have nowhere else to turn. Lord, thank you for that. May you quiet their heart and their soul and deepen them to trust you even more. And in the next season, in the next season, Lord, may we continue to just be blown away by the way that you meet our needs. And may we be quick to glorify you and worship you with our lives as a result. Thank you for meeting our greatest need, the issue of our sins through your son, Jesus Christ. And we see him through every book of the Bible. Thank you that you're not only the sustainer of life, but that you're the giver of life. Lead us this week as we trust solely on you. Remove from us the places that we're looking to do what only you can do in our lives. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people said, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. We will see you next Sunday morning.